Welcome to the Sleep Science Pod, the podcast that reveals the science behind one of the most fundamental, yet most mysterious of human behaviours, sleep. I'm Dr. Caroline Horton. I'm an academic psychologist and the director of Dreams Lab. I also really love sleep, so personally, as well as professionally, I know how important it is for our mental and physical health. Throughout this series, I'll be talking to guests about their common sleep complaints and offering evidence-based tips for getting that all-important shut-eye. Together, we'll evaluate the evidence that sleep improves all aspects of health and well-being, and whether it really is that ultimate panacea. Already in this series, we've considered what happens when we go to sleep, how we are simultaneously conscious and functioning, yet aware of very little, what happens when we don't sleep enough, and how we can try to improve our own sleep and consequently health. Something that has come up repeatedly is that when people struggle to sleep, they use this term being unable to switch off. In today's episode, we'll try to make sense of what that means in both physiological and psychological terms. And we'll also consider whether there's anything we can do to help with this process. In episode two, we explored different sleep stages and learned about lighter compared to deeper phases of sleep and that it's easier to wake from the lighter ones. This transitioning cycle of these different stages and the lovely undulating slow waves characteristic of deep and free sleep imply that sleep is relaxing and restful, easy to fall into perhaps. Yet, You may know that at times, particularly when agitated, stressed or simply alert and aroused, such slumber is hard to come by. It's helpful, I think, to consider optimal sleep as a polar opposite to states of agitation, as that can help us to reflect on which parts of the brain and body need to relax in order to allow sleep to come more easily. But sleep won't just come at any time without effort. I've talked about the importance of creating a consistent and clear routine many times in this series already to train the body and brain to expect when to sleep, like a habit, to make it easier to wind down and prepare for sleep. But even then, there are optimal and far less optimal times for that to happen and we need to bear those in mind in order to build a routine around it. Our sleep stages follow predictable patterns, transitioning from lighter through to deeper phases and back again. At that point, allowing the brain to enter rapid eye movement or REM sleep, which concurrently keeps us asleep, so unaware of our immediate external or non-sleep environments, whilst being incredibly alert with high levels of brain activity. For this reason, REM is also known as paradoxical sleep. We are asleep, but alert and active. In particular at this time, memories of fragments of recent experiences are activated at the same time as fragments of older memories, likely giving rise to that bizarre state in dreams that we've talked about before, in which you're dreaming about maybe your current partner, but in the house that you grew up in as a child. The images and feelings that occur at this time are almost literally crazy. The REM brain has been likened to a state of psychosis, not least because after experiencing these unusual and bizarre hallucinations, which we are deluded into believing are real at the time, we most likely forget about them. 
that's a good thing we forget them really, so we're not too confused as to what's real and what isn't when we wake. Perhaps that's even the function of forgetting our dreams. But we also don't stay in this REM phase for too long. We soon transition out of it again, usually by going back to the deeper stages of sleep, sometimes waking. These cycles of activity occur reasonably similarly over time, although the length of the deeper N3 phases decreases as the night goes on with each iteration of the sleep cycle, and the REM phases increase in length. In general though, the full cycle from peak alertness, whether asleep or awake, to dip alertness, again, either in terms of deep sleep or just a less alert time when you're awake, it takes around 90 minutes. We have 18 of them within a 24 hour period and they are known as circadian rhythms. So circa, around, dian, day, circadian. These cycles repeat on the rotation of the earth around a day long then and make use of external and internal cues to keep them regular. The sleep-wake cycles make use of sunlight as an external cue in a big way. So seasonal fluctuations in sleepiness and wakefulness are very real. However, the circadian rhythms are also massively intrinsic. We're hardwired to behave in accordance with these cycles. And they're not just a human phenomenon either. Animals have them too. So do plants, but even more amazingly, so do fungi and even individual cells. It's pretty incredible and pretty fundamental. In general, if something is present in basic and universal living creatures, it must be important. Thankfully, these rhythms have been recognised as being important, with scientists identifying the molecular mechanisms of the circadian rhythms in fruit flies being awarded a Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 2017. So our behaviour, like a fruit fly, has peaks and troughs. And these peaks and troughs are evident in both wakefulness and during sleep. So is there anything that we can do about these cycles to help us get to sleep? Well, fortunately, yes. And we can think of these in two main ways. Both involve stopping for a little while and making note of our cycles. Firstly, we can measure our cycles to see whether they are regular or not. It was World Sleep Day last Friday, and this year's theme was about regular sleep. I've talked a lot about the importance of formulating and then maintaining a consistent sleep routine in this podcast already. And virtually all sleep researchers and practitioners agree that it's massively helpful to use routine to form good sleep habits. So I was really glad to see this acknowledged this year in particular, when it's fair to say our routines have been challenged with having to work from home and juggle homeschooling and cope with various other unexpected life changes. So we may know now that we need to focus on our routines, but how do we know if they're regular? We have to monitor them before making any changes to them. Let's see whether you go to bed each night at a similar time or not, and whether you wake each morning similarly. And you'll need to do this for longer than a week, especially if you work or study in weekdays, but not the weekends, for example. If you work shifts, how frequently do these patterns change? Is there a pattern to them at all? Make a note of when you feel tired too. Keeping a yawn diary is an interesting one to try to help identify this. When we start paying attention to how tired or how alert we are feeling, patterns are often evident. So try that. Aim for identifying whether your routine is regular or not. If it's not, be aware of it. 
Have a think about how much sleep you might need and what approximate times you might like to sleep and then wake up. But don't be too precise just yet because here's the second thing we need to do. We can try to uphold the regularity of our cycles by accommodating the circadian rhythms into our optimal routines. Let's say that you know that you have a bit of an alert period at around 10 p.m. So maybe you shouldn't be heading to bed at that precise time. Instead, write it out briefly, past the peak, and then start initiating your pre-sleep routine for around 15 minutes or so. So you can hop into bed ahead of your dip time. So you can fall asleep as you are feeling increasingly tired. And then let the dip align with your first deep sleep phase of the night. There will be about 45 minutes between your peak and your dip, and another 45 minutes between that dip and the next peak, and so on. I challenge you to monitor it. I know that I dip just around about 7.30 p.m., just when I'm putting my kids to bed, and I have to resist the temptation to jump into bed with them for a cuddle before they go to sleep, because if I do, I'll be asleep and napping at precisely the wrong time of day which would only make it harder to get off to sleep at the right time about three hours later. But knowing this information, it helps me to alter my behaviour a little, to help with my body and mind being ready for sleep at the optimal time. Both these techniques involve observing our own routines and individual patterns. It might sound complex, but we likely all have these patterns and once we pay a bit of attention to them, they become really quite obvious. We don't want to interfere too much with the natural rhythms, so we just take notice of them and harness them. There are other drives for sleep too, such as the build-up of melatonin throughout the day, which creates a drive for sleep. It's simple, the longer we're awake, the more sleepy we feel. Matt Walker, neuroscientist and sleep advocate, actually refers to wakefulness as low-level brain damage as a reminder that we need to sleep to undo that brain damage and maintain optimal functioning. That sleepy drive should ensure that we achieve that. So let's listen to it and respond to it. Interfering with it can wreak havoc on the routine and ruin good habits. Melatonin builds anyway in humans, but we can also increase the build-up by eating tryptophan-rich foods, proteins really, which are then converted into serotonin, which is a feel-good neurotransmitter, and in turn, that's converted into melatonin. This isn't a quick process, by the way, so having some meat before bed won't get you to sleep any quicker. It's more about helping the routine along on a longer-term basis. Melatonin can also be prescribed to help with disruptions to the circadian rhythms, but we're sticking with more naturalistic interventions in this podcast as a first port of call. But if you're worried about your sleep routine, then do consider keeping a diary and then approaching a GP. GPs may help with identifying associated or underlying sources of sleep problems, but their main job is mainly medicinal, of course, so they might prescribe something to help you sleep. I'd say if you can, Try to work on non-pharmacological interventions, as evidence show that they can be massively effective, these non-pharmacological ones I mean, and they don't come with the side effects. Having said that, if you have serious worries, do seek appropriate professional support. Another trait pattern to observe concerns our general inclination to function optimally either in the morning or in the evening. You might have heard of the terms locks and owls for these types respectively. I'm a lock, 
That means I'm rubbish in the evenings. My other half is an owl. This is quite a handy pairing and again, perhaps quite a functional one in terms of sharing the parental load. It might even be an evolved phenomenon. But actually, most people are naturally somewhere in between being an owl and a lark. More of us function well in the mornings than we might think. We just don't always have routines that align with being lark-like, because electric light or blue light from Netflix has kept us up at night, interfering with a natural inclination to tire in the evening, meaning we need to sleep in in the mornings. And then we miss the incredible effect of the early morning sunrise to act as nature's circadian cue. Even in the winter months, stepping outside when we wake can give us a dose of bright light, which is received by the eye and signals to the brain to inhibit melatonin production. That puts off the sleepiness until a more appropriate, darker time. So this is all good in describing normal, healthy sleeping patterns and how to recognise your own patterns before considering whether and how to shift your routines at all. Doing that may help to exploit natural cues of alertness and sleepiness at the appropriate times. However, for some people, actually for many people at some point in their lives, there are difficulties with being sleepy at the right time, which can lead to difficulties with sleep readiness. This can be due to a number of reasons, but over the past 18 months or so, there's been one term that people have volunteered independently when describing their sleep patterns to me, and that is that they can't switch off. As a psychologist, I'm really interested in this. Our understanding of the neurological and physiological mechanisms underpinning the wake to sleep shift is pretty good. And our understanding of some psychological states of agitation, like hyperactivity or anxiety, are reasonable too. But actually, we're not great at pairing them and explaining how these things can relate. So specifically, how do the psychological mechanisms of alertness actually prevent the sleepiness from winning? Well, as I see it, there are at least two psychological influences on this switch from wakefulness to sleep. One is cognitive and the other is emotional. The cognitive refers to mental load, having a lot to think about. Being active or busy, being awake and involved in a task or a number of tasks. We can draw parallels with physical activity. So whilst exercising in the day is great for many reasons, including tiring the body, it's important to exercise at least two hours before needing to go to sleep because you need to be physically aroused for your exercise, right? The body then needs time to return to normal and recover. If you try to sleep when you're running around, well, it's impossibly incompatible. The same is true of mental exercise. If you're working late or fascinated by a news feature or lost in a film, you're too aroused to be in a sleep-ready state. This is why reading before bed is not helpful for some people for getting to sleep. For others, actually, like me, it sends them to sleep. So if you're in a habit where you're switched on a lot, you might need to take extra time and care about switching off before being optimally sleep-ready. The other aspect is the emotional one, and that refers in general terms to worrying about something, which has the same effect of keeping you alert. When we're really worried, the body and brain remain threat-ready, which again is incompatible with being relaxed and sleep-ready. Sometimes this emotional state interacts with the cognitive, cognitive influence too, so we might be busy and juggling a few too many things, being unable to put them aside when it's time for bed, which can be stressful 
particularly when we're so busy, there don't seem to be enough hours in the day to complete those tasks, let alone put, a, put time aside to sleep or even get ready for that. This is really tough. We have to try our hardest to remember that if we don't sleep, we're more at risk of functioning less optimally the next day. So allowing time to sleep will reap rewards in future. For some people, there are conditions that make it persistently difficult to switch off in the day and in the night. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD, is well associated with sleep disorders, both because being constantly attentive can impede sleep, and also because sleep disruptions can result in ADHD-type behaviour. Imagine being sleep deprived. Your body will need to dig deep for resources to keep the body functioning well in the day, which can be so demanding it's actually hyperactive. This is illustrated by an overtired infant who misses a nap and then becomes almost impossible to calm down. In these instances, sleep is needed more than ever to help with regulating behaviour, but it's particularly hard to come by. So all the sleep hygiene tips apply as usual, but in some cases, additional professional intervention is helpful too. I wanted to find out more about this and how it feels to experience such difficulties with switching off. So welcome to Dr. John Shaw, a lecturer in sleep psychology at De Montfort University and a fellow sleep researcher. Welcome, John. Hi. Well, How are you doing here. today? Actually, I'm quite tired. I didn't sleep well last night, but um, yeah, apart from that, okay. What happened with your sleep last night? I had a really weird dream that woke me up about one, and then after that, I just really struggled to get back to sleep. Like that's pretty much standard, but just drifting in and out since about one till about seven, seven thirty. I I have a lot of sleep disturbances anyway, uh, so um, I do have ADHD, and sleep disturbances are a part of that. So trouble getting to sleep in the first place. Once you wake up, you tend to be up for a while. So um, for the most part, I'd say, I'm not sure what the latest on it is, but I tend to have biphasic sleep where I can sleep between 10 and one, up for an hour or two, and then sleep until about seven. So back when we were going into the office, I was up at 5.30 to get into work. So yeah, my sleep hasn't been good for quite a while. So do you find that you need to increase your window for getting sleep then if you know that there are some disturbances in the night? Yeah, I'd say it's a bit of an odd one because if I increase the window, even if I am tired, I still struggle to get to sleep. I, I, I just tend to spend an hour awake in addition. So again, what I tend to do is I just wait until I'm feeling tired, then I go to bed. Then usually within an hour of hitting the the mattress I tend to be out hour and a half maybe can you describe what it's like in that hour 90 minutes while you're trying to get to sleep yeah so with um so with the ADHD it tends to be that you can't switch off mentally or physically so I have an almost compulsion to move like waking restless like I have to move in some way with my brain it's just not really switching off so it's thinking about what I need to do tomorrow what I've done today thinking about emails I need to send. So it's really just focusing on trying to calm myself down. Just not just, uh, so the way I've been doing it is, uh, I think certain apps in mindfulness call it notation where you recognize something to do and you mentally put it to one side. That is something that I've only been doing for the last 
maybe a year or so, but compared to how I was, greatly improved, really. And what is it, do you think, that's working about that? Is it that you are managing to tick off the things that are on your mind? Yeah, I'd say that is it. It's, so when, before I started doing this, it was more, I had these thoughts and rather than necessarily acknowledge them, I just went along with what was going on. So if I thought about an email I had to send tomorrow, I think, okay, well, I send it when I am immediately awake. No, I'll have breakfast beforehand. Actually, I think I'll exercise. Oh, do I exercise at home or do I go for a run? And it's just a consistent trail of thought that ultimately ends up on something completely unrelated to the original email and at that point I go oh wait I need to think about the email and then it all goes again never-ending cycle of just constantly looping back to the point that I actually need to think about so now just actively thinking about something and say okay but I will deal with that tomorrow sort of ends that thought and it just helps make everything much easier so how much did sleep feature in your sort of original symptoms and recognising that something was a bit different? I, I don't necessarily thought of it as a symptom. I just assumed that was how everybody slept. Like mm-hmm. everybody took an hour or two to get to sleep. Everybody woke up several times per night. Like between one and three, I could wake up three, four times when I was unmedicated. It was actually only really doing the sleep research and with participants seeing them go to sleep with say like 20 minutes or less than that, that I thought that doesn't seem right. Maybe I'm the odd one out here. Interesting. And that's really what made me think about it. And it was say it was midway through the PhD that I actually decided to check on it. And the list of symptoms, especially related to sleep were just astonishing really. So what other kind of sleep related symptoms are there? So the main one is difficulty getting to sleep in the first place. So the sleep onset latency is really long. A lot of disruptions throughout the night that can be either due to mental processes or the physical disruption. So with me, I tend to feel restless if I can't move. So I can be lying on my back, start to feel restless. I have to roll over to my side. If I roll over to my side after three or four seconds, I have to move my arm. just constant moving it annoys the hell out of Natalie in the bed as well. She's just trying to sleep and I'm just rolling around all the time. There tends to be a lot of difficulty with getting up as well. So I've seen it reported in a few places, but people with ADHD, because they have the disrupted sleep, they also tend to have a lot of fatigue when they wake up and they struggle to get up in the morning because of it. So the wait time is much delayed. When you wake up, you might not necessarily get out of bed immediately. So before, I was diagnosed, I could easily spend like an hour in bed telling myself I'll get up. Even if I know I was going to be late to something, I would just struggle to get up as well. And from what I've seen online, so um, ADHD Twitter, it seems to be quite a lot of that reported as well. Mm. Yeah, as you're talking, John, some of these symptoms, I guess, sound pretty normal and I I would imagine relatively commonplace. certainly in terms of uh you know drinking too much caffeine in the day and having that inability to stop the racing thoughts um i can i can recognize that too at what point does it become something needing a diagnosis do you think for me it was when i was just struggling to get up in the morning i eventually essentially became nocturnal which was quite good for the sleep research 
But for anybody who had a normal day-to-day life, I started to see people or spoke to people who just struggled to get up in the morning. They would struggle to hold down jobs because of it. And the disruption in the sleep, like anything, uh, you, m- you might know the exact figure, but the last time I saw it, anything under six hours is considered sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, I, I struggled to get six hours most nights. Um, at one point I was using a my sleep tracking app and actually it was the actigraphs that we tend to use in sleep research. And I think my sleep efficiency was about 63%. Right. Which is horrific when most participants are looking like over 80, 90. And it, I started to notice more and more that it was affecting my day-to-day life in terms of just being willing to go to work. It brought down my mood, general tiredness, just not really doing anything. And I think that's something that a lot of people experience with it. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased for you that you had the chance to recognise that it mm. wasn't good. <laughs> but it's quite yeah. incredible how much we can cope, I guess, with these disruptions. And then equally, there are some people, I think, in the opposite situation who are really worried about their sleep and probably they're sleeping OK. But the issue is that they're worried. And um, actually, with that in mind, we've um, talked about the importance of sleeping off in other episodes in the podcast so far but we've talked about that largely in relation to anxiety so people being unable to stop being concerned uh, about something in particular when you're talking it sounds like the difficulty is with switching off from everything <laughs> does that sound right yeah it's um so i think it's sort of the opposite of anxiety in that i that that's obviously not a clinical view but that's just my own personal view in that I don't necessarily worry about things, but part of that is I don't focus long enough to worry about anything. That's um, that's that's why I've been told I'm quite good at lectures in that a lot of people, if they get nervous, I just don't focus on the nerves. I just go out and do it. But the part of that is there's always another thing that I think about. It's not necessarily worrying about it. It's just that struggle to switch off and there is always something else. I can see a lot of similarities between the two it's more the place where it comes from is different for me at least. Mm. And it's interesting that you've talked about one possible way of improving sleep uh, by boxing up and putting away the things that you that are uh, on your mind Um, and that seems to be something that we try to do with those who are anxious with, with mixed success really. John many thanks for your interview. No problem happy to be here. John described his experiences of activity and having difficulties with switching off in a really helpful way. He spoke of cognitive load, how having lots on his mind, as well as having a quick succession of demands to deal with, meant that he felt he had to act on his thoughts right away, something I've heard other sufferers talk about too. But John also found ways to cope, like boxing up his worries and ideas, to segment them and then put them aside, As a sleep researcher, John knows all too well about the importance of sleep, so that's helpful for him in some ways. But it doesn't make him impervious to sleep difficulties. We're all human and we all struggle at times. Like any habit, we need to have that regular routine to come back to. So if there are any slip ups, they don't become the new routine. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Sleep Science Pod. I hope you found it helpful. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Sleep and Memory 
And until the next episode, sleep well.